About two years ago, I was playing with Ellie, my daughter, and we were wrestling and doing all sorts of things that three-year-old kids like to do and some adults like myself. One of them being, I was holding her hands and swinging her through my legs and up in the air, right? Swinging her up through my legs and back up into the air, over and over. And while I was doing this, in this one moment, Ellie ushered forth a scream that I had not heard since the day of her birth. (laughs) And she grabbed her arm. And my first assessment of the situation was that something was dislocated. And so, this was a difficult situation, because at the time, Brittany was running errands with our car. And so it was just me and Ellie at our house. And so I called up Brittany saying, you need to get home ASAP because we need to go to the ER. I'll explain later. (laughs) And so in the meantime, I had to figure out how to console Ellie in her pain. It was a dreadful situation because every time she cried and she looked at her arm, right, the guilt was just coming on me for what I had done. And so I didn't know what to do, but I was trying to console her, and then I saw we had just introduced Finding Nemo to her like the week previously. And so I saw it there, one of the few DVDs we have. And so I put it in, and I said, Ellie, let's watch Finding Nemo until Mommy gets here, right? Which distracted her uh, at times from the pain of her, her arm. And so I distracted her until Brittany came, we went to the ER. And thankfully, it was not a dislocation, but something called nurse's elbow, or nurse maid's elbow it may be, which is common with young kids. It's just when the ligaments get so stretched, when you're young, your ligaments are just extra stretchy, and so it got so stretched that it then wrapped around one of the bones in her arms, in the elbow. So yes, painful, and it was stuck in that position. Painful, yes, but thankfully, the doctor said, this is a quick fix. She would just push the ligament back over the bone, which would be immensely painful, but after which, it would resume normal function. Sure enough, The doctor pushed, Ellie screamed, then the doctor said, now Ellie, can you raise your hand? And in delightful wonder, she just raised her hand with perfect full motion. I was very thankful. Now, while I could only numb her pain in that moment, right, by distracting her, the doctor could rightly judge and rightly restore the situation. And I think in a very similar way, we are far too often prone to look towards distractions, towards numbing ourselves as a means to deal deal with our own brokenness and the brokenness in the world. And as we saw last week, we need a God to rightly judge in order to rightly restore. We need true judgment that sees, names, and addresses evil and wrong that leads to restoration, healing, and wholeness. Yahweh's last word is not solemn judgment, the striking of a grievous blow of Yahweh's destruction, as we saw last week in Micah's prophecy. As necessary as this is, it is only a means and a hope by which evil is named and addressed so that the restoration of peace and wholeness, or shalom, could arrive, and all that life was meant to be could come. 
This is the vision that Micah gives us in our text today. The hope of shalom restored on earth. So let's read very quickly Micah, the first two verses of this vision. Micah 4, verses 1 and 2. And I'll have it up here on the screen. Micah 4, verses 1 and 2 says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now stopping right there. The way this vision begins is saying, it shall come to pass in the latter days. So it is a future oriented vision, but it is a future-oriented vision that has aspects to it that kind of label its security, that this will happen. It's not a wishful thought, but it's one set in stone from the very mouth of Yahweh himself as the vision ends in verse 4 says. The verbs used in these first couple verses, it shall come, it shall be established, shall be lifted up, are all passive verbs indicating Yahweh's presence in doing them, his activity in doing them, and the means by which this vision is accomplished is very clear in this vision. It's Yahweh's presence upon the earth. This whole vision is oriented around Yahweh's presence, enabling this to happen and securing its reality through his presence. The house the vision says, the house of Yahweh will be the highest and most supreme. That all, like a worldwide pilgrimage, will come into his presence. The nations are proclaiming, let us go to the house or the temple of Yahweh himself. For it's from Zion, his dwelling place, that Yahweh instructs, judges, and restores. And then finally, the vision ends with saying that this is out of the mouth of Yahweh himself. It's his mouth. It's his wisdom. It's his divine presence that provides justice to a world ruled by evil, wrongs being set right. And it's his presence that assures the world of the restoration of his shalom being accomplished. His presence will administer this judgment that overcomes evil and instructs in wisdom and enables those who come to him to walk in his ways. So this vision of Yahweh's earthly presence, it expresses in a way two different goals, two different desired ends. The first one is that not only would the nations know his presence, but they would actually walk in his ways. This dual combo of knowing him and walking in his ways has always been the goal of God with humanity, with his relationship with humanity. From the very beginning of creation, God dwelt with humanity so that they might know him and walk with him, reflecting his likeness as his unique image bearers throughout all of creation. Now, after humanity's rebellion, grasping after their own way, 
God has given Israel the unique task to be the means by which all of humanity, the world, is to know God and his uniqueness and his holiness as he seeks to restore the world. God has given Israel this task. And the giving of the law to Israel for one of the purposes was his gracious gift of knowing how to actually live with this God, with the God of creation. And in living in line with this law, not only would they be blessed, but then they would be able to embody this uniqueness of Yahweh in creation. Which is why the psalmist, as we read earlier, says things like this, and this is throughout the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in these ways, but delights in the law, meditates on the law, and he is like a flourishing tree that becomes what he ought to be. Israel at times did this well, but the overwhelming theme is their failure to not merely know Yahweh, not merely possess the law of Yahweh, but to walk in his ways, to be the people of God, embodying his presence to the nations, called to be his people, but not walking accordingly. God is a God of justice, and Micah has been so clear that they are walking in injustice. They are perverting Yahweh's justice and his mercy. They are distorting his image to the nations. Now, I think we can understand this in very simple ways, right? It would be strange to see whether Jason Adams in our church or I'm sure Nate Spencer wearing a Philadelphia Eagles jersey, perhaps, rather than a Patriots jersey. Or maybe a Carson Rockets wearing University of Clemson gear, may not be said, right? And I can throw myself underneath that bus too, right? Or even Andrew Trussell about wearing a Manchester United jersey. This shall not be. That would not be walking in the way of their gods or their teams, <laughs> right? But in all seriousness, God is after creating a people who know his ways and walk in them. The second aim of this vision is a stunning picture. Let's read it very quickly in verse 3 and 4. The next slide should have it up. This vision says, He shall judge, that is Yahweh, between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall bear their swords into plowshares, or beat, I'm sorry, beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. This is an absolutely stunning picture of what God's just judgment is after. The nations who are so often at odds with one another, and we experience this uh, most of our days, primarily due to various fears in life, limited resources, and who controls those resources. The nations are all coming, willingly walking into Yahweh's presence to hear from him and his judgment, his perfect judgment between them. And this produces a marvelous transformation, a beautiful transformation of the people taking their weapons of war, swords and spears, 
and transforming them into instruments of cultivation, plowshares and pruning hooks. These instruments of farming, going from instruments of war into instruments of cultivation. A beautiful picture of this transformation that happens between Yahweh's presence and his just judgments. These newly fashioned tools are cultivating then the gift of the earth that Yahweh has given to the people, to humanity, to the nations, to cultivate in his gift of creation. They're cultivating the abundant potential of life upon the earth. They shall sit, the text says, every man under his vine and his fig tree. Yahweh's peace enables everyone to cultivate the life of the earth in order to rest and enjoy the abundant life and fruits and lavishness of the earth. If you recall last week, I used a Banksy art piece in comparison to a Monet art piece. And in a way, this transformation of Yahweh's presence, you could say, is not only removing his judgment and his presence, is not only removing the vandalized situation of the earth, the polluted and defaced situation of the earth. It's not only removing that and taking us back to Monet's garden in northern France, but it's taking us to an explosion of new life that covers the entire world, that makes new all things. So this is a transformation of the entire world through Yahweh's presence and his rightful judgment. And this transformation of means of war into means of cultivation is illuminating as we think about biblical spirituality. These items of war are not being displaced, but they are being reshaped. They're not just being tossed out, but they're being reformed into something new. Think about a blacksmith using extreme heat, time, and skill to reshape an item. The process of going from deform to reform takes time. It takes the right presence of heat and sheer power and skill and care that is able to remake the object into something new. Something new that will be an agent of cultivation, of cultivating the life of creation, an agent of beauty and goodness of the creation that God has created. Yahweh's judgment is restoring shalom by restoring us, by restoring his people to become means of cultivation and of this beauty of the earth. This is quite a grand vision. And it's not the only type uh, in Micah here. This is in Isaiah. This is all over the Old Testament and picked up in the New Testament as well. Now, as much as this vision and all the other visions should help us set in context, as we'll see in a bit about Romans 8 and other texts of Scripture, not only should this vision set that context, but we, we should try to land, go from 30,000 feet into much more uh, practical aspects of how does God actually make this vision happen? How does he land it? And of course, the elementary school answer is appropriate, right? Jesus, of course. But more specifically, the life of Jesus. 
he faithfully embodies this vision and secures its realities. His disposition was completely oriented around the Father. He listened and learned and leaned towards the instructions of the Father. Not my will, but your will. Not by bread alone, but by the very words, the very mouth of the Lord, of the Father. His way was perfectly oriented around the Father. He walked in the wisdom and ways of the Father. He did not just know, but he walked in his ways. He multiplied the earth's provisions. Think of the feeding of the 5,000, taking the little and multiplying it to feed the crowds. He restored wholeness in people's lives, casting out demons that oppressed them, healing the sick and unclean that ostracized them, restoring life in all of its fullness and beauty. In his death and resurrection, he calls us to come, to be completely forgiven and fully incorporated into his life, to be fully restored by his life-giving presence as the vision displays for us. The life of Jesus faithfully embodied this vision and secures its reality. Those who accept Jesus' invitation into his restoration on his terms will indeed celebrate not only the deliverance from evil and wrongs being set right, but enjoy his feast of new creation. This is St. Paul's marvelous statement in Romans 8. Romans 8, a very well-known chapter in the middle of, of Paul's massive work in Romans, kind of the hinge point that sends him into more of the specifics of the Romans church situation. He says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ, for God has overcome sin and death through Jesus. So that, but did you hear this? We often kind of period the end, thanks be to God, which is true. But then he goes on, he says, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not that we would just know him, but we would be enabled to walk in his ways. Not by our own strength, not by our own resources, but as Paul continues, those who walk according to not the flesh, but the spirit. And then Paul ends that massive segment in verse 11 saying, through the spirit who dwells in you, God's presence, through the finished work of Christ, God's presence, through the giving of the Spirit, that we might walk in his ways. This means this vision that's in Micah is our, not only our future hope that we anticipate, which is true, it is our future hope that we anticipate, but more importantly, we anticipate it by participating in it currently, by living in this vision now. Yes, not perfectly, not in a fulfilled way, but we anticipate the future reality of it being fulfilled in all aspects by participating in it now, by being a foretaste, you could say, of this vision, a preview of the fullness that is to come. And one of the concrete ways I'd like to end by trying to get a little more concrete because this has so many implications. 
about how we view the world, how we uh, treat the earth, and all these other ways that we might need to explore this vision, what Jesus has accomplished and the giving of the Spirit, what we're called to do now as we anticipate the fullness of this to come. There's lots of implications. But one of the, I think, the, the concrete ways we need to participate, we have to participate in this now, is by extending the forgiveness that we have received from Christ. By extending the forgiveness we have received. While others in our culture, in the way it's set up, or even famous philosophers like Nietzsche would say that forgiveness is a lesser human quality, Jesus so clearly places it as one of the central ways we walk in the way of Yahweh. In our gospel reading, you heard this. And we could say a lot there, but just to be very brief, Jesus teaches us that he is most certainly present among his people, among his church, as they name wrongs, and that's clearly a part of that process that Jesus lays out, as they name wrongs and extend generous amounts of forgiveness to one another. And forgiveness, again, hear me say this, and hear Jesus say this in what we read today. Forgiveness does not mean that we overlook evil or wrongs. Actually, it means we take it very seriously. True forgiveness must be able to name it. Miroslav Volf and Archbishop Desmond Tutu are two Christians, Christian leaders, who have lived in situations of great injustice and evil. Miroslav Volf, uh, uh, from Croatia, grew up in the time period in which that area was in great pain and lots of injustice being extended, even among different Christian groups. And in his work, Exclusion and Embrace, he is having to, he is expressing that he's having to wrestle through what it means as a Christian to extend forgiveness within light all the injustice that his family and his people have been through. And similarly, Desmond Tutu, in his work, No Future Without Forgiveness. And in these works, they testify that genuine forgiveness needs to have the following elements. First, as we've already talked about some, wrongs and evil must be recognized and named in order to be forgiven. Second, all parties are committed to resume an appropriate relationship with one another. You could say, if I were to elaborate on that, I would say again, even in Jesus' vision of the church, living out and embodying his forgiveness, we are recognizing that we share a common good together that we are pursuing in the kingdom, in this vision that Micah has given us. And in this aspect of naming evil and wrongs, is an effort to be able to move beyond that into restoration together. And so they are committed to resume an appropriate relationship, being caught up, if you will, in this vision. Third, all parties are committed to not allow this past evil to shape our future together. Which I want to say, men like Miroslav Wolf and Desmond Tutu and others like them 
who have suffered such grave injustice, for them to say that is a massive commitment to Jesus' own forgiveness of themselves and the work that they have seen done in light of what Jesus is doing through forgiveness. In this, right, in this, what you might want to call a thick version of forgiveness that Jesus himself is displaying for his church to follow, in this forgiveness, guilt is released and suppressed anger or frustration of the injustice of the victim is released. And ultimately, this forgiveness frees us into a new life together. And both Miroslav Wolf and Desmond Tutu have amazing examples of how this has happened in their own personal lives and in their own specific context. Jesus is promising us, as his church embodies, lives and anticipates and participates in this vision by extending generous amounts of forgiveness. Jesus is promising that as we live this way, naming evil and wrongs done, and extending generous amounts of forgiveness, his kingdom presence is most certainly with us, is most profoundly with us. His spirit's work, ushering through that, liberating those who are guilty, liberating those who, with great injustice, has been extended to, and ushering forth a new way of walking together. God is restoring his shalom in Jesus and through the power of the Spirit. Let us be quick to make things right between us. Let us be quick to move in this direction with the presence of Jesus and his Spirit that the kingdom might be embodied before us. May he teach us his ways and enable us to walk in his paths. Let's pray.